Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 10th, 2008. I'm Elena Ranke. If you had 40 hours to sit down and talk with the Dalai Lama, what do you think you would say? Well, psychologist Paul Ekman had that opportunity, and his book Emotional Awareness details this conversation that he had with the Dalai Lama on psychological balance and compassion. Ekman spoke about this experience at the Science and the City event series. This week, get your emotions under control with highlights from the evening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Happiness and Its Causes Conference. What is happiness? Is it possible? Find out from Paul Ekman, one of the 20th century's most eminent psychologists. Join him and 40 of the best minds in psychology, philosophy, science, the arts, sports, and politics in San Francisco on November 24th and 25th. For more information, log on to happinessandtscausessf.com. The book is based on the 40 hours of one-on-one conversation we had. It was intense, it was passionate, it was funny, it was challenging. It was really amazing. It was quite an adventure. I've really never spent 40 hours talking with anyone, let alone the Dalai Lama, about a single topic, and that topic being one that has really occupied my thinking for more than half my life. There are a number of professions from uh, marriage and family counselors to social workers to psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, psychologists who are dealing with emotional problems. So emotions are not uh, totally transparent, just sort of matter of fact, just as we breathe and eat, we have emotions. Now emotions can get us into a lot of trouble and people don't really understand this most intimate part of themselves. But the science on it, there's a lot of science on emotion, and that's why we met together. And yet I thought that the Buddhists have a very different view of the mind, that we might be able to come up with some new insights. And indeed we did. We both changed our views on certain issues, and we came up with ideas that neither one of us had had before. Uh, And that's wonderful fun. Emotions evolve, I believe, in a way that keeps awareness out. Think of a near-miss car accident and you have a prototype for what that emotion mechanism can do. Extraordinarily complex appraisal occurs, recognizing not only a danger, but the speed, the vector, the angle, and then instructs you on what movements to make on the steering wheel and with your feet. All learned behaviors, incidentally. Automobiles were not part of our ancestral environment, but saber-toothed tigers were. So we have a mechanism for dealing with emergencies so fast, it's prior to consciousness. In the near-miss accident, you are aware of it afterwards. If you had to be aware of it before and think about what to do, you'd be dead. You could not drive cars, or they couldn't go more than five miles an hour. You need a lot of time to respond. So it's a fantastically useful mechanism, and one of the reasons it's so useful is it keeps consciousness out. But much of our life is not dealing with saber-toothed tigers or cars coming at us. But we're dealing with the same mechanism that keeps consciousness out. And so that's why we've called the book Emotional Awareness. And much of our discussion is what can we do to acquire what nature didn't give us? 
which is awareness, if possible, of emotional impulses, and if not, at least when we're behaving. So the first issue is appraisal awareness. Can you be aware of that very fact of the appraisal that produces the trigger, whether it's a car or something that your wife said about how you dress tonight, and how you've responded to that? Well, as best we know, and we don't know a lot about this, appraisals can, and in emotion, often do occur in under 200 milliseconds prior, too fast for awareness to get in. The Dalai Lama does not believe that he can ever witness and observe the appraisal process. So it's useful to mention it and put it aside, at least for the moment. But impulse awareness, that is, after the appraisal, impulses arise before there is any action or speech. Now, becoming aware of the impulse, there are things you can do from both a Western and a Buddhist point of view that will increase the likelihood that you could acquire impulse awareness. The key one is to become aware of the impulse to act in an angry fashion before you act. The Buddhists say you have to recognize the spark before the flame. Western psychology, actually, Western psychoanalysis says you have to recognize the impulse before the action. Now, what neither really are very explicit about is that that's very hard to do. Emotions evolve to deal with emergency situations without conscious participation. Now, in much of social life, the emergency isn't that intense, and yet the mechanism is designed and functions to make it very difficult for you to be aware of the impulse before you've acted, and very difficult still to even be aware of the fact, once you're behaving emotionally, that that's indeed what you're doing. Everyone's had the experience when someone says to you, what are you upset about? Mm -hmm. And that's the first time you realize, yes, I'm very upset. We're just not acquainted with our own minds. So how can we begin to do that from a Western point of view? One of the things we can do, we have a set of exercises, actually. I'm going to give the audience a chance to try one meditative and one Western exercise to increase awareness of the impulse. So here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you uh, to uncross your legs and to just sort of sit with your hands not touching each other, no pencil or pen, just let your hands be relaxed. You don't have to do anything with them. You can't hold a paper in your hands as my wife is doing. You just need to be sitting there. And then what I want you, you can close your eyes or not. Some people find it's a lot easier to close their eyes, others not. But you should sit in a fairly erect posture. And what I want you to do is to focus all of your attention on the sensations in your nostrils when you breathe in and breathe out. And it may help you, on the first breath in, to think to yourself, one. And on the breath out, two. And then keep going and try to keep that attention focused just on the breath, no other thought. I'm going to let you do that for 15 seconds. I did this on a Martha Stewart satellite radio program today. They said, 15 seconds of silence? We can't have that on the radio. Okay, but you can have that. Let's try now. 
Just breathe in and breathe out and just focus on what that feels like in your nostrils primarily and in your diaphragm. Okay, you can stop. How many of you, while you were doing that, found that a thought came into your mind? Can you raise your hand if a thought came into your mind? Very common. One night, if you want to try this longer, what I I urge people to do is, and let's see, if you haven't done meditation before, just try to do this for 60 seconds. Set a little timer to 60 seconds. And every time thoughts come into your mind, and they will, and you then notice them. You don't always notice them right to begin with. Then bring your mind back to your nostrils. And after you have gotten to the point where for a minute you are not floating off onto a distracting thought, they'll still come. You'll see them, but you won't engage with them. And you'll stay focused on your breath. After you can do that for a minute, which may take a few weeks, then add another minute and build it up slowly. People get discouraged. They try to do it for 20 minutes. It's extremely difficult. You don't have to think about your breathing. If you did, we, you know, we couldn't do anything else. Just make sure you keep breathing. But you know, that's not. This is automatic, totally automatic. So what this is doing is focusing you on automatic behavior focusing and training your attention to monitor automatic behavior. That is actually when you acquire a new skill, whether it's playing tennis or doing this, you're re-sculpting your brain. You're creating new networks for monitoring automatic behavior. And that has transferred to emotion, which is automatic. So the better you get at this, the more you're going to be able to be aware of the automatic beginnings of emotion. That's my theory. It's actually in my previous book, Emotions Revealed. He says, yes, of course. What's a big discovery? Well, no one else has really tried to ever explain why this seemingly nonsensical task would have any benefit. But there's, And as I'll show you shortly, uh, we have results and so do many other people. So here's an exercise. Now this one I do want you to close your eyes. And what I want you to do is try to remember a time in your life when you got so angry that you either hit someone or really had to restrain yourself from hitting someone. Now, we know from research that we've published that by this point, there are major changes in your heart rate, blood pressure, skin temperature, but I'll come back to that. So you've identified such a scene And now I don't want you to be like a television viewer looking at the scene. I want you to go back into your body in that scene and let those feelings grow as strongly as you can and pay attention to what's happening in your body as you re-experience, relive that intense anger. All right, uh, I'm going to stop you. We usually let people go for 15 seconds. We get big changes, of course, in heart rate and blood pressure and skin temperature. Blood goes to the hands and to the arms to prepare you to hit someone. Not that you necessarily will, but from an evolutionary point of view, those that were so prepared 
uh, were more likely to get their genes into the gene pool. Increase in blood pressure and, and heart rate is related to being able in a position to fight. These are sensations that you can feel. And the more that you use this exercise, not once, we had them do it every session, once a week, for eight weeks. And we did it with four emotions. Anger, fear, disgust, and sadness. Just to increase that awareness. So the research question was, if you use techniques like that, and there are three or four other Western techniques, and different types of meditation with perfectly normal people, three hours a day, what will happen? So we tested them for two days, pre, after the eight weeks, and six months later. And of course, there was a control group who didn't get the training. I've already shown you that. So 42 hours over eight weeks, random assignment, 41 in the training, 41 in the control measurements, as I just said. Using well-accepted measures, the change in depression level was as large as has ever been reported in the clinical literature. The same with anxiety. I don't like that term, positive affect, but that's what is, all affects can be positive. But the emotions of enjoyment and particularly calmness showed significant increase. There's an interesting measure of rumination, and rumination decreases. And the understanding of how other people feel markedly increased. These were very robust findings. We're waiting right now to find out whether Psychological Science, a flagship journal of the American Psychological Society, will accept this for publication. This research was finished four years ago. I got was quite ill before, right when it was beginning. And so I had to have someone else carry it out. Something strange happens when you get findings and you're not trying to get tenure. You don't feel like you're in such a rush to get them published. But we are trying to, to get them out. All of these changes held up five months later. Now, the amount of improvement was related to their self-reported amount of weekly practicing these exercises outside of class. This is now being repeated in other settings in two or three places in the country. And I'm working with Alan Wallace to make some of these exercises available online. How can anger be constructive? There are 30 pages in that book in which we discuss that. My thinking on that was heavily influenced by Buddhist thinking, even because they had come up with a notion that was also in Western psychology without them knowing it and without us in psychology knowing them, which is anger that is directed at the action but not the actor is constructive. So if you're giving me a lot of trouble, I have to stop you from giving, for harming me or harming others, but I have to try to have some understanding and compassion towards you. If what I do when you try to, when you block my uh, pursuit of a goal is try to hurt you, we're going to get into a fight. And we're going to, uh, unless I get rid of you completely, I'm going to make things harder to get along with you in the future. So it's a huge distinction, and we go at some length. Got, is, is the impulse to hurt the other person intrinsic to anger? Can we be angry without wanting to hurt? Um, I did a commentary on um, WNYC after each convention, 
And uh, about Joe Biden, I said this was an example of Buddhist anger. Because what he started, this is in the middle of his acceptance speech, he said, John McCain's my friend. He's been my friend for more than 20 years. I like John McCain. But John's policies are wrong. Mm -hmm. Now, John is wrong about Social Security. Terribly wrong. He'd get us into an all kind. And each time he showed not just disagreement, but forceful, angry disagreement, he always called him John, to reinforce in our minds, as he was saying it, that he's separating the person from the person's policies. Very Buddhist. I watched uh, Supreme Court Judge Scalia on 60 Minutes two weeks ago, and the interviewer said, how can you be friends with Ruth Ginsburg? The two of you are supposed to be really close buddies. You disagree about everything. He says, what does that have to do with friendship? I like her. We enjoy each other. We don't agree. These are separate matters. That's very Buddhist, too. Emotions don't tell us their trigger. When I do, I do quite a lot of work with law enforcement, and I, one of the main things I emphasize with police is that if you see someone afraid who you're grilling in an interrogation as a suspect in a serious crime, you have to remember that the fear of being caught looks just like the fear of being disbelieved. It's fear. Mm -hmm. Fear is fear, and it doesn't tell you its trigger. You have to find out. We know how another person is feeling. We know what they're likely to do next, but we're not certain exactly what they're going to do next. And so we agreed. It had always been my position. Uh, there are no negative emotions. There are no positive emotions. There are emotions, all of which can be enacted in a way that is either helpful or harmful to us and others. And we then came up with, and he liked it, uh, the criteria of what's the criteria for knowing whether this enactment of anger or fear is constructive. And it is whether or not it furthers collaboration between us in the future. Because we have to be able to get along with the people that we live and work with. And if you express an emotion in a way that interferes with further collaboration or cooperation, then it's destructive, not constructive. He now describes himself as a Darwinian, which I'm very pleased about. After one point, he quoted Darwin back to me. As Darwin would say, he said, he is nothing if not open-minded and non-dogmatic. Amazing flexibility and acuteness in thinking. We met because we hoped that bringing together a spiritual and a scientific, a Buddhist and a Western view on this single topic of emotion and compassion, that we'd uncover new ideas that neither of us had had before. And maybe each of us would change our views on some things. And both things happened. We learned from each other, and we learned together. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Happiness and Its Causes Conference. What is happiness? Is it possible? Find out from Paul Ekman, one of the 20th century's most eminent psychologists. Join him and 40 of the best minds in psychology, philosophy, science, the arts, sports, and politics in San Francisco on November 24th and 25th. For more information, log on to happinessanditscausessf.com. Do you love Science in the City podcast? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org and click Join NIAS. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about our show? We would love your feedback. 
send us an email at scienceinthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And if you want to know more about science in New York City, you can visit us online at scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.